This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 34 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, the latest on South Africa's lockdown from President Cyril Ramaphosa. Answers for the millions of Vitality members who are wondering whether Comair going into business rescue means the end of their cheap flights. South Africa's only living Nobel Prize winning scientist, Professor Michael Levitt's scorecard on how his former homeland is handling the crisis. And then there's a crisis of a different kind as Airbnb entrepreneurs who own 22,000 properties in Cape Town alone, struggle to stay afloat. And the invasive measures that companies are applying on the office and home lives of the returning-to-work workers. Inside COVID-19, from BizNews. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa announced Wednesday night that a number of Level 4 restrictions specifically on retail, e-commerce and exercise, would be reduced and that the country as a whole is to move to level three of the lockdown at the end of May. He also admitted that there had been a number of contradictory and unnecessary regulations and said these mistakes would be rectified. An economic recovery plan is being discussed in Cabinet and will be released as soon as deliberations are concluded. Here are some of the highlights. We will immediately begin a process of consultation with relevant stakeholders on the proposal that by the end of May most of the country should be placed on alert level 3. In the coming days we will also be announcing certain changes to level 4 regulations to expand permitted business activities in a number of sectors in the retail in the e-commerce and reduce restrictions also on exercise. Most importantly, this new phase will require each of us to change our own behavior in profound ways. There needs to be a fundamental shift in our thinking and our way of life. We need to take personal responsibility for our own health and the health of others. Let us remember that although the lockdown has slowed down the rate of transmission, the virus is very much still present and will be present amongst us for a long time to come. We will need to reorganize our workplaces our schools, our universities, our colleges and other public spaces to limit transmission. We will need to adapt to new ways of worshipping, of socializing, of exercising and also of meetings. And this will minimize the opportunities for the virus to spread. 
It is our actions now that will determine whether the advantage we gained through the lockdown can be sustained. The last time I addressed you, I said that we will soon be embarking on the third phase of our economic response to the coronavirus crisis by outlining a clear strategy for economic recovery. Cabinet is seized with this issue and will be announcing the outcome of what we are discussing when we have completed our work. A very different South Africa and world awaits us. The greatest test will be our willingness to embrace change. We are now required to rise to meet this challenge. We need to stand as one family and one nation to build a new and stronger society and a stronger South Africa. The days before us will be difficult, but we will draw strength from what we have already achieved. South African Finance Minister Tito Mboweni has earmarked the 24th of June for his 2020 Special Adjustment Budget, where he will share details on the funding and allocation of that 500 billion rand COVID-19 fiscal support package. A note distributed today by National Treasury reminded us that 130 billion of this will be via reprioritization of money that had been tabled in February's budget speech. Of the 500 billion rands, a chunky 200 billion is for a credit guarantee scheme, 100 billion for job protection in small business and informal businesses, 70 billion via tax deferrals and 50 billion as additional social benefits. In his appearance before US senators, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the scientist who's leading the fight against COVID-19 in the world's hardest hit country, emphasized the need for caution and testing as lockdowns start getting eased in America. Dr. Fauci also warned that serious risks would continue there at least until September when schools reopened. Meanwhile, U.S. President Donald Trump publicly backed Elon Musk's decision to reopen Tesla's California motor plant in defiance of local authorities. Trump's press secretary also said the president's concerns over the lockdowns extended beyond the economic impact, warning also of mental and physical harm to people. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Dinesh Govinda is the Chief Executive of Discovery Vitality. I had a fascinating chat with your colleague, Gareth Friedlander, who tells me that if you are a Discovery Diamond member, you have 41% chance less of going to hospital through COVID-19. Very excited about what Vitality stands for. We always have been. We've always been passionate about being our members' partner on their journey to good health. And I think... You know, everyone, intuitively, everyone knows if you stay healthy, if you exercise, you, you boost your immunity. I mean, the, the data is still early, but it's very, very clear that, you know, vitality members who are engaged, so they exercise regularly, they eat healthily. It doesn't prevent you from contracting COVID, but if you contract it, you definitely have a lower risk of hospitalization because you're staying in good health, because you're exercising, because you're eating well. And I think, you know, it just reinforces 
our core purpose. Discovery's core purpose is to make people healthier and enhance and protect their lives. As a head of Vitality, you know, we, we view Vitality as a heart behind the Discovery Shared Value model, which says if we do the right things for clients, if we get them to, to exhibit the right behaviors, it lowers their risks, which makes us a successful insurance company, and you end up with a more productive society. Now, that's on a general basis. But if you take just a pandemic like COVID, this behavioral risk is so in your face, right? The nature of risk, even in an infectious disease outbreak, is, is completely behavioral in terms of hand washing, social distancing, use of face masks, but also while you're in lockdown, not resorting to all the unhealthy behaviors, but actually eating well and still staying fit, even if you can't go out for a run. Are you able to monitor how Vitality members are behaving in lockdown? This lockdown's really disrupted our members' gym routines and their travel plans. And we're working with those partners to, you know, in terms of how they're doing and when they'll get out of this uh, situation. I think in the meantime, though, for Vitality, we've said we've got to remain relevant because it really is a problem. If people stop moving, if people, you know, resort to eating comfort foods all the time, if people get anxious or depressed through this period, we want to figure out how can we help reverse those or prevent those from happening. So, what we've done is shift from the physical to the digital when it comes to exercise. So many of our members now engage in uh, engage in exercise using heart rate monitors. So we have an Apple Watch benefit. We have a, a device benefit at Sportsman's Warehouse and Total Sports. And members have used us to get heart rate devices, and then we were able to track their workouts at home. What we do with those is we've provided, uh, and we've called it over the speed, we've called it Vitality at Home. We've created a home workout channel where if you're wearing your heart rate wearable and do one of the, those uh, home video workouts, you're, you're going to get 300 points because we've boosted your heart rate over that period. Now, some of our members went into lockdown without getting a device. They still got their smartphone where they can track their 10,000 steps a day and get their points. We've also, that's why technology has really helped us over this period. So we can monitor who's actually participating in home workout videos and give them at least 50 points for the home workout video. So if you're watching the home workout video, trying your best to stay in there, you know, you're going to get 300 points if you're wearing a heart rate wearable. But if we can't track you that you're actually getting your heart rate up, we're still giving you 50 points. We want you to exercise. We want you to acknowledge that through the points. And we want to also like encourage you during this period by, by giving you the right types of rewards. So while, while you can't book your next flight right now, what you can do when you're earning these vitality points, getting, boosting your status and getting there is getting 50% off at Woolworths or Pick and Pay and Healthy Food, getting 50% off on healthy care at Clicks and Discam and getting 50% off at, um, at Total Sports and Sportsman's. So we just announced that part last week, which is we've doubled all of our healthy care, healthy food and healthy gear benefits over this period. So people feel rewarded. We've also over this period, added to our active rewards platform. So we've added Netflix and box office and we've discounted them. So a 200 rand, 250 rand Netflix voucher uh, costs 1,500 discovery miles as opposed to 2,500 discovery miles. And a box office voucher instead of costing 30, uh, 350 discovery miles costs 150 discovery miles. So all of a sudden we're saying, you know, we're still pushing and encouraging you to exercise and created all these avenues to do so. And we found some rewards which will make you very happy over this period because they're at partners who are open and who are contributing to, uh, to your good health. What's the feedback, though? Are you able to see whether your members are exercising more during this lockdown period or less? The results have been promising. 
I think people have been looking for good news and been looking for motivation in a period when, you know, frankly, a lot of the news is around watching the infection count go up every day. So what we've seen is our most engaged members have actually increased activity over this level. We've seen people using their heart rate devices actually earn more points than they did before lockdown. Where we're trying to still continue to motivate members is the guys who are doing just one or two workouts a month, those are the members who have, we've seen a dip in activity and we're trying to get back up there. But overarchingly, members who have been exercising are exercising more days right now than they did before, which is great. And it means that the program's working and it's benefiting them. That's made us very, very satisfied with the results. One, one other way in which we've been quite reassured is normally when you go into social media, especially Twitter and Facebook, if you put down a post around, you know, one of our typical vitality uh, posts, you get quite mixed results and social media is a place where people can be quite harsh in terms of their, their request for service. It's been really, really uh, heartwarming that members have come whenever we announce some of the changes we've made over this period to help remain relevant for members' health journeys. The amount of thank yous we're getting on our various platforms has been really, really heartwarming. And, you know, I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank our members for engaging with us and remaining our partners for this period. How many Vitality members are there? So we've got 1.8 million members right now, if you just look at the health base. But if you count health, driving, and vitality money, which is where we're trying to change all the behaviors, we've, we've exceeded the 2 million mark. And because bank is, is, is still relatively new business and growing, and so, and so is insurer, we're actually, those numbers are still ticking up. Even during lockdown, we've got our Discovery Bank numbers ticking up because, you know, members on Discovery Bank, don't just get the regular healthy food benefit, but they get a boosted benefit. So, you know, if you've got a, if you're a Discovery Bank member right now over lockdown, you're getting your healthy food for free if you're a highly engaged member with a black credit card or a, or a purple credit card. So bank continues to grow. We've got over 2 million Vitality members across the three programs right now. And we're starting to reward members across the programs as well. So one of the absolute killer benefits over this period is we're allowing members to exercise to, to basically monetize their exercise directly. If you do a workout over this period and you get 300 vitality points, at the end of that week, we're depositing 300 discovery miles into your discovery bank account. So it's all coming together quite nicely right now. And changing habits, no doubt, people have now got the opportunity, being at home, to really focus on, on what the program gives them. They've also, though, uh, heard that Comme has gone into business rescue. Now, how long have they been a partner of Vitalities for? Comi has been a long-term partner of ours. Back a, a decade ago when we launched, over a decade ago, uh, when we launched our, our travel uh, rewards benefits, you know, we, and we have a great relationship with them. They're not just our partner in terms of the airlines, Kalula and British Airways, but, you know, booking off all your other flights and holidays for Vitality members also happens on, on the uh, Comi platform. So really long-term partners. This is, uh, this seems like, you know, we've been in, in close discussions with them. And I think the business rescue process was a necessity of the times in terms of the best way to preserve cash and figuring, figuring out how to get into the skies again, uh, later this year in a, in a, in a successful and, and, and more importantly, in a sustainable manner. So, you know, we're, we're 100% committed to, uh, to them as partners. We're very optimistic about the process. We've actually spoken to them and the business risk, their business rescue practitioners who were helping them behind, before they went into this process. So I think the intentions to get back into the skies is clear. We're optimistic, positive around that. And, and if and when that happens, our members will continue to book with them as, and members who have bookings or credits with them right now will be able to book in future with them at no additional charge. We're hoping that's the outcome.
What if they don't? That's the process and that's the uncertainty around any of the processes with any of the businesses over this period. I'm positively optimistic about it, but there's no guarantees for any of our businesses over this period. And we wish them well and we're, we're very supportive. So you're standing with them, but as far as the Discovery Vitality members are concerned, obviously they can't book anything now, but do you have any idea of, of when Kame might be back yeah. in or airline might back, be so, back in, in, in the end? So it's quite a, it's quite a structured process. So for, for, so for me, I guess the, all the greatest uncertainty is really around how lockdown progresses, how the COVID pandemic progresses in South Africa and when government responsibly opens the skies again. And I think that's probably the greatest uncertainty. In terms of the Comair business rescue process, that's quite clear and, and, and gives one great comfort. The business rescue process has begun. They will announce, the, the, the business rescue practitioners will announce their business plan on the 19th of June. So it's quite a structured process. And then they will begin implementing that plan in terms of restructuring the finances of the organization, etc. So I think it will become quite clear in time what the process is. I think the great uncertainty for any business right now is really around how lockdown progresses, how the pandemic progresses. And I'm sure there'll be an uptick once, once we're through all of this. The question is, you know, when will that happen and how will that happen? I've got to ask you this question. You're a chemical engineer who's been a uh, a degree at Harvard University in America. How do you end up running what is essentially a marketing organization at Vitality? Discovery is the most incredible company. And I think if you, if my, my entire life, I feel like I've been attracted to, to positively, difficultly challenging situations. And I think, you know, Discovery and uh, Vitality in particular is just a place where you can have a huge impact. It really is a company built on a, on a, on a profound core purpose. When we're sitting in an exco meeting with, you know, with Adrian Gore and Hilton Kalner and the, and the rest of the, you know, the founding team, you get a real sense that this is not a place where people are trying to manage the share price. They're trying to do the right thing for clients and for society. And I think, you know, I was, I was actually absolutely drawn to just the energy of the place and the, the ability to, to do things on the fly if it feels right. And if you think about just what, and I work with an incredible team in Vitality, if you look at what the team's been able to do to transform from sort of a gym and flight-based uh, sort of incentivized behavior change program to one which is incentivizing online workouts in your home, giving you Netflix vouchers and sort of, you know, sort of giving you free healthy food during a lockdown. Uh, and to do all of that with 98% of our staff in Vitality working from home remotely, has been nothing short of miraculous. So as an engineer, I, f- I found this an incredible feat and very, very, uh, very, very excited and, and truly privileged to be part of it. We ran a fascinating webcast or part of the webcast that Adrian Gore, your CEO and, and co-founder, uh, did a couple of weeks ago. And in it, he said the scientists and the engineers are going to be playing a bigger role in society going forward. That is interesting because up to now it's been more of the accountants and the and the marketers. Perhaps. Well, I, I, you know, there's a role for everyone, and right now it's it's less about the labels of you know the profession and more about are they building. You know, how do you build and how do you how do you remain creative over this period? It, it gives me great comfort for the types of uh, learning that's happening out there right now. The last few years, in 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 all education spheres, people have been talking about creativity. Uh, and communication skills and all of these things which are less less formulaic around sit in your cubicle and do X, Y, Z. And, you know, if you think about how the world will be, how South Africa will be, how discovery will be uh, post the pandemic, 
during the pandemic and post-pandemic and, and, and how strong each of these spaces will be. I think it requires creativity, it requires innovation, it requires actuaries to be marketers and engineers to be sort of businessmen and, uh, and doctors to be leaders. Um, you know, it really, it really does require people to think outside of the, the boxes that they were working in. And if you look at just the, all the glimmers of hope around the world, they've typically come from people coming up with new solutions based on a deep and profound respect for the science behind it, as opposed to ideologies that are, that are baseless. It gives me great comfort to that, you know, that the world will think more about science. The world will end up uh, being much more thoughtful around how we interact with our environments uh, in the coming years. So there is an upside to all of this. There must be an upside to all of this. And I think, you know, if we look at just what happened in the previous hundred years and just where we were before COVID, society has moved to, you know, we've, we've progressed so far in terms of getting rid of poverty, educating masses of billions of people, uh, compared to where we were 50 years ago. If you're looking for an upside of if COVID, it's, it's hard to sugarcoat. This, this isn't, this is horrible. It's, it's a true atrocity. Uh, in terms of just what it's doing to particularly the poor, particularly to people who, you know, are, are sort of on the poverty line. It really, really is hard. It's creating huge anxiety. But as a human race, we'll come out stronger on the other side. And, you know, we'd, we'd have some learnings. And I hope some of those learnings are not just around sort of fact-based creativity and innovation and building, but it's also around sort of the humility, like some sense of humility in terms of, you know, respect for respect for our environment, and and sort of you know uh, being having be thinking more broadly than just the the bottom line. Inside COVID nineteen from Biz News. It's a real pleasure to be talking with Professor Michael Levitt. Not just because of his connection to South Africa, and we'll get into that in more detail, but because of the way he's shaking up thoughts about COVID nineteen around the world. Professor Levitt, let's start with the South African connection. So you you were born in Pretoria. You went to Pretoria Boys High, left South Africa at the age of 16, we think fully formed and fully developed because you then went on to uh, to achieve great things in the world, including the only living scientist from South Africa who won the Nobel Prize. We're very proud of you from that perspective, but there are people in South Africa who are not so proud of what uh, you believe the world should be doing right now, i.e. that the lockdown is a Huge mistake. Now, in the interview that we published on Biz News that you had with Unheard, you never referenced South Africa at all. Clearly, it would be lovely if you could give us your thoughts about this country if you've had the chance to to have a look at your old homeland. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, and uh, I wish I was actually physically there. Basically, in, in our analysis, which has been very global, we looked at countries where there were at least 50 deaths and 3,000 cases. It seems that COVID is in some ways connected to seasonal flu. And right now, you're coming into your flu season, probably after COVID. So except for Brazil, most countries uh, south of the equator have not fared badly. So basically, South Africa is still uh, at a stage that we think is an early stage. Both the numbers of uh, new cases and the number of deaths are increasing. The number of deaths is 200 out of 10,000, which I think is 2%. That is still fairly low, which actually shows that you're probably catching people fairly early on. In some of the worst hit places, that number goes up to, instead of being uh, 50 to 1, can be as little as 5 or 6 to 1. So in Lombardy, uh, 20% of the cases were actually deaths. As, as I said, the, the 2% is, 
is good news. South Africa is at an early stage now. There are certain states in the United States that are still like this. It's very, very hard at this stage to predict when things are going to start to peak. The thing we're looking for right now is that the number of new cases uh, should stop increasing from day to day. It's a hard thing to see because there is a lot of noise. Um, and I think it all comes down to these invisible cases where for each person that is a visible case, so probably in South Africa right now, the number of total number of cases is much more than 10,000. If you, if you really could measure randomly, you'd probably find it's 10 times higher at least. And this is good news. But it also means the measures you're taking, at least the personal protective measures like face masks, are a good idea. When we look back on all of this in a few months, hopefully, or at least next year, in the interview that you did with Unheard, you said that there were going to be standout winners in countries and standout losers in countries. Would South Africa be in either of those camps? And indeed, what would South Africa be doing from here onwards to become a standout winner? Um, I think that South Africa needs to be on the alert for new outbreaks. And when they occur, to isolate that area. They may not occur. Let's imagine that if New Zealand had been a you know, control thing as they had, but Australia had 10,000 deaths, then we would have a measure for South Africa. It would not surprise me if COVID is somewhat territorial. So, for example, in Israel, they were very happy that they had 250 deaths so far uh, when people had predicted 20,000 or 10,000. But the fact remains that their neighboring countries, Egypt and Jordan and Syria, actually have fewer deaths. And is this because they have less old people? Is it because they don't count the deaths properly? Is it because of the climate? In Israel right now today was uh, in the high 20s, uh, warm. I mean, I, I'm impressed with South Africa moving early. It's clear that moving early is an important thing to do. I expect a peak to occur soon. I, I would be very surprised that South Africa has the longest, slowest up, you know, building up of things. Again, if there's a massive second outbreak, say South Africa releases everything now crazily, not in a controlled way, starts to have, you know, rugby games or whatever, and suddenly there's a, you know, without them realizing if the next outbreak is, is huge. It doesn't necessarily mean they're a loser because they could get herd immunity. We have examples of that. So, you know, is Sweden a winner or a loser? I mean, by the criteria of number of deaths, it's a loser, but by the criteria of not destroying the economy, they're definitely a winner. And the number of deaths, again, is going to end up being this one in a thousand level. So they, there's not a lot they can lose. So, you know, I think South Africa is fine. I think, I think they're going to be fine. I really do believe that South Africa will end up having curves that look like New Zealand and Australia. And, you know, right now, Brazil is somewhat of a concern. The good thing about this conversation is I now feel very energized uh, to help. I was very, very proud to see the tweets about South Africa's you know, only living Nobel Laureate. I hadn't, I knew Aaron Klug and Sidney Brenner very, very well. And, and uh, you know, I, but I hadn't sort of put those facts together. And I'm very proud. And, and you know, and I, I'm very happy to help. I, I, uh, I'm actually proud to be a South African. And, and uh, among other things, I, I, I have a lot of different citizenships. What about the comment, though, that you made to Unheard, that lockdowns are a huge mistake? Let's just quantify that. I think that lockdowns definitely can control things. And I think when, when you said to me that this lockdown gave us time to prepare the medical personnel, that for me was finally a really good reason for having a lockdown, something I hadn't thought about. But I think we're thinking about 
places where they're already getting the deaths. In other words, my guess is that Britain could have continued. They're, they're, they're not, it would be very hard for them to have more deaths than they're having now because they're going to reach their, their 1% level quite soon. I think that, again, lockdown needs to be smart. I think that it would be very easy for countries to adopt less painful measures. In Israel, they had the situation where somebody was windsurfing. And they descended on him with a helicopter and a speedboat and arrested him on the seashore. And this was at a time when they had just opened up IKEA. So everyone was, I mean, it was just such a bad, you know, medium moment, such and so stupid. And, you know, it's it, it just not common sense. I feel that, you know, we're sort of, again, we, we don't yet know. I don't know what's going to happen in Brazil, some of the more southern states. But on the other hand, you know, numbers are going down everywhere. The numbers in, in Russia, even Russia seems to be sort of peaking. I mean, they've got 2,000 deaths and they seem to be peaking. Yeah, South Africa ramped up very slowly, uh, maybe because of the lockdown. It, it, everything is consistent. I think it's going to be fine. One thing that is important for, for preventing further outbreaks is to try to measure things as cleanly as possible. The new cases are an important measure. And if new, ca- I mean, Sweden is a, is a point in case where they have no new cases on Sunday and a huge number of new cases, you know, by the next Saturday, they're just releasing them. And then people have looked and found that the, the death certificates are actually all perfectly fine. It's just the day they release the news. Maybe they didn't deliberately. Uh, I don't know. It's very much a question of weighing deaths versus damage to the economy. This is something that the country has to do. And it's something which the country has to do in a way which is meaningful. And I think that uh, economists have this measure of years of lost life where you allow for the fact that people uh, don't live forever and also damage that poverty causes. And there's no doubt that for each uh, shrinking of the economy by, by a certain amount, people die. Very often, though, there are different classes of people than the people who don't die because of uh, these measures. And this leads to a, a polarization. I, I, I sort of feel that the, the real message here, in, in looking back in the long term, is going to be that this was the, the time that the young people finally got fed up of the baby boomers. And uh, the baby boomers have been messing things up now for 70 years with pollution and nuclear wars and nuclear weapons and global warming. And, uh, you know, they're still basically going for their own protection versus the uh, economical situation of younger people. And I, I only speak like that because I'm a baby boomer. Um, we're seeing this in more and more places. And I think, you know, and, and this is also part of the glorification of every death is the same. And for me, a five-year-old is worth more than an 85-year-old, even if it's me. And I really mean this. And I think anyone who doesn't think that is very selfish. For many years, Airbnb's rental platform offered millions of people the chance to make money on their own terms. South Africans also jumped on the opportunities it presented with website Inside Airbnb, estimating that Cape Town offered around 22,000 properties. Now with travel near a standstill, those hosts are scrambling to keep their rental properties afloat, and many are either putting their properties on the market or are shifting to monthly rentals. The Wall Street Journal's Trip Mickle and Pratika Rana explain the rise and sudden collapse of hosting on Airbnb to host Kate Leinbach. 
when Airbnb started out, the concept was very simple. It was renting out an air mattress in your home. In fact, they made it mandatory for you to rent out an air mattress. So back in the day, you couldn't really rent out your bedroom or an entire home. The concept was someone comes, sleeps on your mattress, you give them breakfast the next day, and then they're on their way. This was in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. This was a time when a lot of people had lost their jobs. The economy wasn't doing so great. People were looking for secondary income. And when people bought in and when they saw that this was steady income and this was passive income, people bought into that promise. Right when Airbnb started out, it positioned itself as giving outsized power to hosts. They said, hey, you are your own boss. Because these hosts weren't employees of Airbnb, they could set their own hours. They chose who got to stay on their property, not the company. And they set their own house rules and picked their own cancellation policy. Flexible, moderate, or strict. That arrangement appealed to a lot of people. Over the years, more and more hosts signed up for Airbnb. And Airbnb started letting those hosts rent out way more than just an air mattress. Over the years, you would see a shift in listings. They went from, hey, renting out my spare one bedroom to now advertising standalone apartments, standalone properties. Airbnb, in a sense, is a property manager without any of the property risk, the way that hotels do. They run their own properties. If anything goes wrong, they are ultimately responsible and liable for that property. Airbnb can easily wash their hands off and say, hey, we are just a tech platform. It's not our responsibility if something went wrong. As hosts built their Airbnb businesses, many of them took on debt to do it. Mortgages to buy new properties or loans to pay for furnishings. As long as the bookings kept coming, many hosts could easily make those payments. But when the coronavirus brought travel to a halt worldwide, bookings on Airbnb dried up. And hosts were still on the hook for all their debt. And in the early days of the pandemic, Airbnb, the company, made a choice that made the financial pain for some hosts even worse. A lot of Airbnb guests had reservations that they'd made before the pandemic, and they wanted to know, when are we going to get our money back? For years, Airbnb had let hosts make that decision. Hosts could pick their own cancellation policies. But in a pandemic, that did not go over well with guests. So at first you had outrage from guests in the U.S., in Europe, who said, hey, our airline has canceled and is giving us a full refund, and here you have Airbnb that's not refunding our stay. Under pressure, Airbnb pulled rank on its hosts. Airbnb said, okay, you know what? It doesn't matter if a host has set their cancellation policy to not refund you. We are going to give full refunds to guests. As soon as they did that, the host turned against them and they said, how can you just override our policies that we've set with the guests? For some hosts, it felt like Airbnb was going back on its promise that hosts set the rules, that you control your business. And for hosts who set strict cancellation policies, it 
it meant they might be out a lot of money. In a case where you have a strict cancellation policy, and if I'm a guest and I cancel, the host still gets 50% of that money. So a lot of hosts that we spoke to said, you know, we had accounted for at least 50% coming in, and now we have nothing. If you ask Airbnb, Airbnb will say, but we always had a policy where we had the final say. And in a situation like a pandemic, we had to take matters into our own hands and do what we felt was right by guests. Airbnb pointed out that hosts had agreed to an extenuating circumstances policy. And a pandemic is an extenuating circumstance. But after facing backlash from hosts, Airbnb announced a set of measures to help them out. The company promised it would send millions of dollars to hosts to help with mortgage payments. And it set up a program where it gave hosts some of the money back from those canceled bookings. Some hosts are getting so desperate that they're trying to sell their properties. We have real estate brokers telling us, hey, we have Airbnb hosts calling us saying, I'm a month or two away from foreclosure. What is it going to take to get my property sold now? And suddenly you now have property prices dropping because they're desperate to sell their properties. Airbnb has secured $2 billion in loans to help it weather the pandemic. But as its hosts start considering other options, the future of the company and the economy it helped create appear unstable. All industries have in some way or another been hit by the pandemic. Was the sharing economy particularly vulnerable? The sharing economy was vulnerable in the sense that it had the allure of big corporate names that everybody knows, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb. And historically, we always thought of big companies as kind of helping take care of the people who work for them. But the gig economy is predicated on this is your job. You get to choose your hours. You don't really work for anybody. And so while everybody signed up for that, that means that in the midst of a pandemic, there's no kind of corporate support, if you will. But in the interviews with hosts that you talked with, people talked about the magical money. And don't we all kind of know that magical money is dangerous? Like, aren't these hosts, didn't they sort of, they made their own bed here? Yeah, and I think people recognize that some of these hosts overextended themselves. They put themselves in a risky situation in terms of assuming some debt and depending on Airbnb. But then also, I mean, you can look at this somewhat sympathetically, right? I mean, if Airbnb didn't exist, maybe fewer people would be participating and be just typical property owners as opposed to this kind of like mushrooming phenomenon around Airbnb that we've seen. As companies figure out how to reopen their offices while keeping workers safe, some employers are turning to invasive new surveillance measures at the office and in workers' personal lives. The Wall Street Journal has looked into how it is going to be deployed in the United States, but it is relevant for South Africa as companies grapple with returning workers to a safe environment. 
Correspondent Chip Cutter explained to host Ryan Knudsen why heightened surveillance at work could outlast the pandemic and how difficult it would be to get rid of Big Brother in the office watching us after the pandemic. Different companies are moving at different speeds. Facebook said yesterday that employees could keep working from home for the rest of the year. But a lot of companies are hoping to get people back sooner. They want to get their fighting formation back, is how one executive put it to me. Companies still want to have kind of the elements of offices, the collaboration, the idea sharing that happens just when everybody is in the same room together. And there's this desire from companies to get folks back because some of their employees may have childcare issues, because some may be working in tiny apartments. They want to give that option. Companies aren't going to force everyone back all at once. Most likely, people will start coming back to work in phases. But even then, they'll have to make their offices look pretty different from the ones they've built over the last few years. Think about some of the most iconic offices, offices at places like Google and Facebook and some of the biggest technology companies. We just picture them and think about big, wide open spaces. Well, CEOs are now saying that those sorts of offices, that open space between workers now is now is a real issue and something that needs to be addressed. Companies have created these models, almost financial models, but looking office by office, what is the maximum capacity we could have? And a lot of companies have said it's about 30% of the people might be able to return. Perhaps it's only 50%. What exactly are they going to be able to do to create space inside the office? A good example here is, is the credit card company Discover Financial. They will basically put people at every other desk, essentially put X's on the desks and chairs not to be used. Companies are deciding that only some conference rooms might be able to reopen. The CEO of Qualtrics, which is a part of SAP, the big technology company, told me that he's looking at setting up outdoor conference rooms at some of his company's offices in Utah, for example. There's been talk in the elevators of putting a square in each corner of the elevator, advising employees, don't board that elevator unless there's an open square. Four people in an elevator does not sound like socially distancing, no matter how large the elevator is. <laughs> well, but that is a consideration companies are thinking about. They're throwing away the condiments near the coffee bars. They're telling people the gyms and showers will be shut down until the end of the year. Just really kind of the way we work in offices is going to change in so many different ways. But executives are worried that those physical changes won't be enough, that maybe people won't follow the rules. Or that even if they do, drawing up new floor plans and getting rid of coffee bars won't stop the spread. This worry has driven companies towards much more invasive measures, ones that sometimes involve digging into employees' personal lives to decide who can even come back to the office in the first place. Across corporate America, ideas like this are spreading, and they go beyond who can just come back to the office. For those who are invited back, their employers will be watching them closely, And it could start before they leave the house. Some companies, for example, are considering sending a questionnaire to employees every morning when they wake up, asking them, how are you feeling today? Say you answer the questions correctly. You say you're feeling okay. You then would be given a code that you could scan in the lobby that would then give you kind of access uh, to the building and to your office from there. Also, some companies are experimenting with having people take their temperatures at home with a digital fever app, logging those results, and almost getting something that's equivalent to the TSA pre-check. They're also thinking about asking workers and asking visitors to offices how you arrived that day, with a thinking being that a private car is safer than arriving via subway, for example, or public transportation. 
And once people arrive at their desks, employers want to know who else they're coming into contact with by asking employees to download smartphone apps and installing sensors around the office. They're turning to surveillance, to digital monitoring tools to get a sense for how their workplace is operating and to get a sense for kind of where people are moving throughout offices. And the thinking here is that this would be a way for employees to see day by day how well they're doing and staying apart from each other. At some companies, they're even thinking, for example, of giving people scores at the end of the day, saying, how well did you socially distance? How far apart did you stay from your colleagues that day? Wow. <laughs> that sounds really intense and invasive and kind of creepy. There is a creep factor to this. Companies haven't decided yet what will happen to people with low scores. What do you think about all this stuff? I mean, would you, is this a, is this a working condition that you think that you would accept? I'm not sure that I would, to be perfectly honest. It would make me feel really nervous. It would make me feel that I was kind of constantly being watched, even if I understood why employers were doing this. So I think it would change how I went about my day. I think I would be a little more careful just in terms of if I knew my employer was standing over my shoulder digitally. You know, I, I do think it would change how you would kind of think about work and think about just your relationship to your company. All the ideas to track workers from temperature checks to health surveys, it would definitely expand the amount of personal data that employers are gathering. But Chip says that overall, it's really just an incremental step because even before the pandemic, employees were already being monitored. Really, employees don't have a whole lot of privacy at work. We've reported a lot about the different surveillance methods that have been put in place in workplaces. Companies use tools, for example, to analyze the sentiment of the workplace to determine how happy folks might be based on, for example, Slack messages or the tone in email. The effectiveness of some of these tools can be debated, but employees don't have a ton of privacy at work. So employers are within their bounds to use these tools. And employers push those bounds all the time, especially in moments of panic and fear. Like after 9-11, Americans accepted much more security at office buildings, things like turnstiles and bag searches. And the same thing is already happening now. So I talked with a social media marketing firm based in South Florida. It's called 98 Bucks Social. This is a company that decided to install remote monitoring software, software to get a sense for how workers were spending their days. It takes screenshots of their computers every 10 minutes, and it logs which applications they're using. And then managers can then look at that to get a sense for what people were doing in a given day. The CEO told me that he never needed to use the software when people were all in the office and he could just look across the room. But when everybody went home, he needed it. And there was real pushback to this. He said that when he told people he was going to start using this tool, he said he didn't see the eye rolls, but he could feel the eye rolls, that he felt like he knew people <laughs> were upset about this. And some said that they were worried, that they felt like this was big brother in the office. But the pushback wasn't enough to get the CEO to change his plans. In fact, he told Chip that the productivity monitoring was actually so useful that he was going to keep it going even after his workers go back to the office. Just like turnstiles and bag searches didn't go away in the years after 9-11, monitoring software might stick around too. I think we'll enter a state where, you know, almost every movement is tracked at work. So from the moment you enter the door, you are tracked, you're observed, you're surveilled. And what worries people who have studied this for a long time is that once these tools are installed, they oftentimes do not go away. Companies may use them for other purposes, for example, to determine 
perhaps how people are moving through offices or determine the effectiveness of and the kind of the use of their space. And so that's what some people are worried about here is that there's very little incentive to get rid of these tools once you start installing them. So it sounds like it's possible that heightened surveillance of employees could be a legacy of this pandemic. I think it absolutely may be that this technology installed now to solve this issue in the moment could be with us for a long time to come. This has been episode 34 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.